0: Thank you, ladies, for that. It's wonderful. If you'll open your Bibles to Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, as you're turning there, if you haven't made use of the back of your bulletin, you feel free to do that at any point during the sermon. You want to record ways in which the Lord has been faithful to you, feel free to do that anytime. If you want to take it home and use that as a time, to something to do at home with your family, do that as well. Psalm 118 is where we're going to be this morning. Well, we're headed into the holiday season with Thanksgiving coming up this week and, and Christmas coming just after that. And the holidays are going to be a very busy time. You got lots of things going on. It's an exciting time. Family coming into town. Maybe you're going out of town to go see the family. Over the next month or so, we'll all eat way too much. Probably spend way too much money on gifts and all those kinds of things. But all my life, I have been in a church that is intergenerational. And what I mean by that is that there were people in the church, always, in all the churches that I grew up in, um, of all ages and ability levels and all walks of life. And the biggest thing that I think that that has afforded me, the biggest benefit it's afforded me, is that it's given me the opportunity to see life through the eyes of someone that's not my age. When that happens, you come to realize that the holidays are not always a celebration for everyone. In fact, if you talk to anyone who has lost a loved one, they will tell you that the holidays are the hardest time in the year. And just as many of us are celebrating with our families around the table, their minds are drawn to the ones that are missing from the table. For those of you, like me, who aren't there yet, I want you to consider for just a moment that most all of us will experience that at some time in our lifetime, where the holidays will be bittersweet. It might be a tragedy or it might be just the normal course of events where we lose a loved one and the holidays come around and what should be the brightest spot in the year has a twinge of bitterness to it. As the Thanksgiving holiday approaches this week, I want us all to pause for just a moment and consider the gratitude in our own heart, regardless Of which end of the spectrum we fall on when it comes to the holidays. I want us all to think about what we have to be grateful for. I know that I'm guilty in the past of just skipping right past Thanksgiving and going straight to Christmas. My wife will tell you that even last month I was playing Christmas music in our home. And if truth be told, it was probably like June or July that I was playing Christmas music. But I want us to pause our busy lives and take just a moment and use the upcoming holiday to be grateful for what the Lord has done. And for those of you that look at the holidays with a bit of pain, then I'm, I'm hopeful that this sermon, this, this passage that we're in, will be of great help to you in turning your heart in gratitude toward what the Lord has done for you. As we go through this psalm, there will be a couple of things that I want to point out along the way, and I want you to take note of. We're going to read through the entire psalm, but we'll only really focus on verses 1 to 7. We're going to look at a couple of different verses through the rest of the passage. We're going to focus on verses 1 to 7. Um, we'll read it all. With that in mind, let's look at our text, Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. As my helper, I shall look in triumph on those Who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and, be- and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Most of you will probably recognize some of the familiar verses in this psalm, even if Psalm 118 as a whole is otherwise unfamiliar to you. Psalm 118 is the most often quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. And there's very good reason for that, as I hope that you will see by the end of this sermon. Psalm 118 is a psalm of praise in the Psalter which means that it's to be recited and sung by the congregation frequently in order to exalt the name of the Lord, in order to praise the name of the Lord, in order to give thanks to the name of the Lord for all that He has done. This this psalm doesn't identify the author for us. It doesn't say if it's a psalm of David or not, though some people have assumed that it was written by David. Now, one thing seems to be, Uh, A reasonable assumption is that the central figure in this psalm, the one doing most of the talking, the one who refers to himself as I in the psalm is most likely a king of Israel, mainly because we see that in verse 10. He says, all the nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Seems to be some sort of battle going on. But there's also another group that's present in the psalm. You can see that if you read through it. We see this clearly. There is a, a, in verse 25, there is a chorus that cries out. He says, Save us, us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. On several occasions, this plural chorus chimes in in the psalm. Sometimes it's more obvious than at others. This scene that's playing out in front of us, seems to be a king who has led his people into battle, but was surrounded by their enemies, other nations, as we see in verses 10-13. to But he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord saw fit to rescue him. Rescued the nation of Israel by defeating all the nations in battle. This is why some people think that this was penned by David himself. But the scene... That this psalm is depicting is also really important. This king is singing praises to the Lord as he's marching up the steps of the temple. You see that in verse 19 when he reaches the gates of the temple and he calls through the gates of the temple, presumably to the priests that are on the other side. He says, "Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord." Now he's been always been been uh, already been giving thanks to the Lord as he's walked through the streets on his way up to the temple. But now he wants to go into the temple and continue to give thanks to the Lord. But as he's going up to the temple, he's leading behind him a chorus of people that chime in throughout the psalm. In verse 20, then the priests who are presumably on the other side of the gates call back to him, This is the gate of the Lord! The righteous shall enter through it. You're probably familiar with the Disney movies where the, person's wa- the main character is walking through the streets and they're singing this song and the whole town is sort of joining in the chorus at various parts during the song. The baker sticks his head out the window and he sings part of the song and then the rest of the village kind of chimes in Uh, all along the way and they sing part of the song before long the main character has this group of people behind her and they're in this choreographed dance as they walk through the streets you know we don't know if there's a dance that goes along with psalm 118 might have been lost in long ago we don't know there probably wasn't though just going to guess there probably wasn't a dance but similar picture is at work here here is this king this main character who's walking through the streets on his way up to the temple, singing praises, and this chorus of people that want to go into the temple with him are behind him, singing with him as well. They want to go in that they might continue to give thanks to the Lord on the inside of the temple because God has delivered them from the hands of their enemy. But I want you to notice a few specific things about this psalm and what it has to say to us. First, that the foundation of our thanksgiving is, is the goodness of God. The foundation of our thanksgiving is the goodness of God. Look at what the psalmist commands right there at the very beginning in Psalm 1 in the in Psalm 18:1. 1. He says, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord for because he is good." The reason for the giving thanks is the goodness of God. Now, I've come to see this as one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life to believe. And it's, it's very difficult even to convince other people that it's true, that God is good. The goodness of God is easy to see when everything is going well in your life, when everything is rolling your way, when your family is healthy, when things are going well at work or at school or wherever. When you and your spouse are in sync, when there's no apparent conflicts around you in your life, it's easy to trust in the goodness of God. But when circumstances change, when health fades, when work becomes tumultuous, when you and your spouse can't seem to agree on anything, when other conflicts seem to be all around you, it becomes more difficult to believe in the goodness of God and there's a couple of senses I mean when I say the goodness of God one sense is a theological truth God is good I think most of us in this room could respond that way if asked the question is God good yes God is good most of us, if we went around the room, we would know the answer God is good. We know theologically that is true. And we, as Christians, are here to affirm that God is good. But there's another sense in which God is good, and that is experientially, He is good. He is good to us. We know that He is good. It's not just the knowledge that the character of God is good, but that you actually feel at this moment that He is good. That you sense it in your heart that He is good. That your emotions are maximally satisfied with God's goodness. Now, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know what I'm talking about. When that worship song is sung and the tears come to your eyes... Or when you read about the working of God in other people's lives and it resonates with you. Those times in your life where you couldn't imagine touching sin with a ten foot pole. Because you can't ever imagine wanting to break fellowship with the Lord. It's this feeling of euphoria. I think think it's the kind of, of goodness of God that the psalmist meant in Psalm 34 when he said, Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's that feeling of euphoria that you have in knowing that God is good. Listen, when we're experiencing both realities of the Lord's goodness at once, we know in our heads theologically it's true that He is good. We feel in our heart that He is good. We're on the mountaintop. Life is good. It's not difficult to convince you to come to church, to sing praise songs. Your emotions are right there. You're ready to worship God at any moment. You're on the mountaintop. But you need to know that if we're looking at life as a pie chart, the times where you are both maximally satisfied in your heart with the goodness of God, and theologically you know that God is good, that is not the lion's share of the pie. While it's great to be on top of the mountain, as the saying goes, the fruit is grown in the valley, there are going to be many times where what you feel in your heart is varying distances away from what you know in your head to be true. And you need to know that everyone else around you feels the exact same way. Most of the time we'll try to tell ourselves that everyone else around us is constantly on top of the mountain, experiencing both realities to the fullest. And I'm the only one whose emotions are fickle. I'm the only one who wakes up in the morning and is not sure whether I want to be a Christian today or not. And that's not true. In fact, we all have to fight constantly for the desire to worship the Lord. It is a fight every single day. Even the psalmist in this psalm, who in this psalm seems to be, largely speaking, on cloud nine. Look at verse 18. He lets you in on what life is like sometimes. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. He's not talking about here just about merely dying. We're all going to die. The psalmist at this moment in time is dead. Right? So all of us are going to die. He's not talking about just merely dying when he says the Lord has not given me over to death. He's making the point that the Lord hasn't given me over to death. He hasn't thrown me away with the garbage. He hasn't been so frustrated with me that He just pitches me out with yesterday's trash. Two chapters earlier in Psalm 116, verse 15, He says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. So it's not as though He's saying that if you die, the Lord is mad at you. No, 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 no. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. No, far from it. He's saying that though the Lord has disciplined him severely, he hasn't thrown him in the garbage out of anger. So in order for us to properly return thanks to the Lord, we have to first remember that he is good. That everything he does is good. Think about that for for just a moment. If God has done something... It is good. If God has done something. It is good. Tell yourself that. Repeat that over and over to yourself. If God has done something. It is good. In this situation. Has God done something here? Then it is good. Do I know how it's good? Maybe not. But if God has done it. It is good. This Thanksgiving, do you find yourself in peril? Is a loved one in peril? Are you struggling through a hard time? Is a particular situation straining your relationship with the Lord? If God has done something, it is good. Do you believe that? The foundation of our thanksgiving is the goodness of God. Second thing I want you to see God's covenant faithfulness is the evidence of His goodness. God's covenant faithfulness is the evidence of His goodness. Look again at verse 1. Oh, give thanks. To the Lord, for he is good for or because his steadfast love endures forever. How do we come to know the goodness of the Lord? The psalmist tells us his steadfast love endures forever. This word that you see translated there, steadfast love, will sometimes be translated kindness, sometimes translated faithfulness or covenant faithfulness or loyal love. And about a hundred other things that you'll see it translated as. Because it's a difficult concept to communicate in English with just one or two words. It has the meaning of the love between two individuals due to their unique relationship. In English we just use the word love. And then based on the context, you get the idea of what kind of love we're talking about. So if I said to you, I love pizza, you would know that that's a different kind of love than if I said I love you. Although it does depend on the pizza, right? (laughs) I'm just kidding. But think about this just for a moment. About a relationship you might have with an acquaintance or maybe even a friend, okay? There are limits to which they could push you that would put such a strain on the relationship that there's, it's very difficult to ever see a recovery in that relationship. Uh, think of something extreme. They, they murder a member of your family. Would put such a strain on that relationship. There would be virtually no recovering from that. And you might still say that in some conceptual sense that you still love them, but there's been a strain so much on the relationship that there really doesn't seem to be much hope uh, in the way of recovery. it most likely lead you to denounce your friends. You might say, you know, we used to be friends. That's probably how you would introduce them. But compare that to your child. There's nothing that your child could do to make them no longer your child if they commit the most heinous of sins, they're still your child. And there's no length that you wouldn't go to to restore the relationship if you possibly could. And though there might always be scars in that relationship because we live in a fallen world, you'd happily work toward the rebuilding of that relationship if you thought it was possible because of several reasons. First, Because of the kind of person you are, you want to love people. You're a loving person. Second, because of who you are in the relationship, you are the parent. And third, because of the kind of relationship that you have with this person, they are your child. Your blood. All of this calls for a different response towards them than you might have to a stranger or even a friend. Now what took me a couple of minutes to explain is one Hebrew word. That is all communicated in just the one Hebrew word. It's translated here, covenant faithfulness. Steadfast love. God's covenant, fatherly, loving, faithful love endures Forever. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's a pretty good way of putting it. The king or the leader in this psalm Calls for this refrain to be repeated by the people in the chorus that are walking along with him. He first calls to the house of Israel. That's all the Jews. You see that there in verse 2. And you can imagine them shouting together as they respond to his call. His steadfast love endures forever. In verse 3, to the house of Aaron, which is the the Levites specifically, the the priestly community. You can imagine them following behind him and and calling out together. His steadfast love endures forever. Then finally, in verse 4, to those who fear the Lord, which would probably be the Gentile converts that come in in the chorus. He calls to them and they say, His steadfast love endures forever. The reason for the word, the reason for the explanation, the reason for the repeated refrain in this psalm is because the very reason we know that the Lord is good is because of His covenant faithfulness to us. He is good because His steadfast love endures forever. If God didn't possess a steadfast love toward His people... If He could be persuaded to just ditch us at some point, or throw us out like yesterday's garbage, then we would have no way to know that He is good. He might very well be good, but we would have no way of knowing it. And no way to know that He will always be good to us if His steadfast love did not endure forever. Instead, we're not only assured of His goodness, we're assured that He will always be good to us. Precisely because of His covenant faithfulness and the fact that it will never change. This is why He says in Micah 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. If He could deviate from His covenant faithfulness, The children of Jacob, much more all of us, would be consumed by His divine wrath. Would be swept away in judgment. But it's at this point that I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, only those who submit to His rule and authority in their lives, only those who have repented of their sins and dedicated their lives to the authority of His word, fall under the covenant love of God. The king in this psalm moves through the streets, marching his way up to the temple. And I'm going to tell you that Psalm 118 is all about Jesus. When he gets up to the steps, he shouts to the priest on the inside, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And the priest calls back from the other side, This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. By his own righteousness, he has gained admittance into the presence of the Lord. To which the chorus responds in verse 22, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The only Old Testament verse quoted in all four Gospels is this one. Jesus says it about himself. His disciples will write books and they will also say it about Him. In Matthew 21, 42, Jesus says to the chief priest and the elders, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the cornerstone upon which the whole church is being built. Not only is he the cornerstone, not only is he the king leading the processional, but his people are the chorus behind him. If you look at verse 25, the choir, the choir says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The word here translated, save us, in verse 25 is hoshiana. By the time the Lord comes, comes on the scene, Jesus comes on the scene, it's pronounced Hosanna. And it came to mean not save us, but salvation has come. And the people shout it as Jesus rides into town on a donkey. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You need another piece of information about this psalm. This psalm in the five psalms that precede it are known as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise. It's where we get the word hallelujah from. The Psalms were sung over the Passover feast. Psalm 113 and 14 were sung before the meal. Psalm 115 through 118 were sung at the end. Matthew records in his Gospel, chapter 26, verse 30, that immediately after the Passover meal, he says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This psalm was the hymn that, would have, that they would have sung as Jesus headed out to the Mount of Olives where he would be arrested and then ultimately led into town as a procession follows him to be tried in a kangaroo court and ultimately crucified on Mount Moriah. But do you see that Jesus is not only the king, leading His people through the gates of righteousness. He is not only the stone that the builders rejected. He is not only the salvation that has come in the name of the Lord, but look at verse 27. The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. He's also the festal sacrifice. Bound not to the horns of the altar, but to the arms of the cross. He not only leads us through the gates of righteousness, but He has died so that we may be righteous. So that we may freely enter into the presence of the Lord. Jesus Christ is all through this psalm. And when you see Jesus Christ... He is the shining example of God's goodness to you. He is the demonstration of God's steadfast love toward you in that while you were still a sinner, He died for you. Brothers and sisters, if you find your heart struggling with gratitude, with thanksgiving, as I often am, look no further than the merciful gift that God has given to you in the death of His Son, whereby He demonstrated to you that He will always be faithful to you. That He will never leave you. And that everything He does to you, everything that He does through you, Everything that he does for you, and everything that he does often in spite of you, is for your good. Always. As you're contemplating Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, let me assure you there are only two responses. To Jesus being the cornerstone. There's only two responses to Jesus being the cornerstone, and that's according to Jesus Himself in Matthew 21 44. The first response to Jesus as the cornerstone is to fall onto the cornerstone. That's the first response to fall onto the cornerstone. That's to confess your sins to Him, to trust Him and Him alone for salvation. And Jesus says, your heart of stone, in fact, your whole self will be broken into pieces. The second response is to let the cornerstone fall on you. That is to walk out of here, out of this place, and completely ignore Christ. Or maybe even just to push Him to the margins of your life on the weekend, Jesus tells us that on the great day of judgment, you will be crushed by the cornerstone. I would beg all of us to consider our responses carefully. Come just as you are. Yes. Come just as you are to the throne of God through Jesus Christ. But don't leave until He changes you. Come just as you are. Yes, absolutely. Come just as you are. But don't stay that way. Don't leave until He changes you. As I close, I think this means something very important for us. This Thanksgiving holiday, and it's the last point I want you to see. Identifying His past faithfulness to us is how we come to see His goodness. Identifying His past faithfulness to us is how we come to see His goodness. Look at verse 5. Out of my distress I called on the, name, on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The psalmist recounts a specific example of the way the Lord has been faithful to him and and reassures himself of what it means. That this means that the Lord will always be faithful to me. Because his steadfast love endures forever. He has rescued me from distress. That word there means a narrow place. He has rescued me from a narrow place a tight spot and he has set me free the word that he uses there is a broad place it means a broad place he rescued me from a tight spot and he set me down in a broad place we are awaiting a day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead and on that day our place will get even more broad as we are set completely free from the last vestiges of sin. So our thanksgiving is pointing us toward the long-expected return of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this thanksgiving, please consider first that God has blessed us with the broadest of all earthly places. He has rescued us from death And He has set you free in Christ. And if you'll think carefully, then I'm sure you'll come up with plenty of other ways that He has demonstrated His steadfast love and faithfulness to you. My encouragement to you would be to write them down and give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we were not consumed. Far from being consumed, you have blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places. You have given us riches beyond all imagination. Lord, we as a body know in our heads that your steadfast love endures forever. We know in our heads that you are good. But I pray that our hearts would be persuaded as well. Pray that as we reflect on our lives, that we would see your hand of goodness. And even when the darkness closes in, that we would be able to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Lord, I know right now that there are plenty in here for whom this is the hardest Thanksgiving they've ever gone through. And there's going to be a temptation, if it's not already there, for their minds to be able to say, you're good and your steadfast love endures forever and their hearts to just run away. I pray that your goodness would bind their hearts like a fetter. That they would be chained to the mast of the Lord, that they wouldn't be swept away in the storm. Father, we are here. We are here not because we love you, but because you first loved us. You set your love to us. And we are grateful. Father, I pray that you will help our unbelief. You will give us faith where we lack it. You will allow us to bend our knees before you, to bow our heads, to lay down every earthly treasure To give thanks for all the many ways that you have blessed us. That it would be a pattern of our lives from this day forth and forevermore. In Jesus' name.